0: Turn, if you would, with me to Hebrews
1: chapter
2: 8.
0: Hebrews chapter 8, did want to mention uh, as well, I think many of us are aware, perhaps all of us, but we want to rejoice with the Mitchells in the marriage of Jordan to Colin. Beautiful wedding, and thankful for God's establishing a new home, and uh, bringing a son-in-law into theirs, brother-in-law.
1: Thankful for the Lord's goodness to you all, and we rejoice
2: with you. And we have a couple more coming, weddings. That is (laughs) just a good thing.
0: Hebrews chapter eight. In your Bible, we have been looking at the subject of reconciliation, and we're going to turn to focus on the reconciler, and particularly in the book of Hebrews, these uh, three chapters from chapter 8 through chapter 10 on the ministry of our great high priest, uh, his new covenant, a contrast between the old and the new covenant, and then the sacrifice of Christ. And so I do anticipate, as we observe the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the month, we will be in uh, these chapters for a little while. But uh, as we come to chapter 8 in Hebrews, we have to remember that the writer, as he has uh, begun, as someone said, with an essay-like introduction, and continued like a sermon. He ended like a letter in this uh, work that is called Hebrews. Uh, We don't have uh, a title or a heading as to who wrote it. Many believe it's the Apostle Paul. Uh, Of course, we know that Scripture uh, has ultimately the Holy Spirit superintending over the human writer And uh, we'll leave that discussion as to who wrote it. But if I slip and say Paul, you'll know what my opinion is. Um, But this uh, chapter, of course, in the original uh, writing of it, there were no chapter divisions. But up to this point in Hebrews, the author is showing the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's superior in chapter one. To the prophets. God had spoken in the past various times in various ways through prophets, but in these last days, the author says he has spoken in a son, and obviously we know it's the son, but the distinction between the prophets and Jesus is, yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he is the very son of God, and as the son of God, he is superior not only to the prophets, but he's also superior to any of the angels. He has a much better name than them, as the author starts out in uh, chapter one, speaking of the name Son and then exalting the Son as one who was both called God and indeed one who had created the world uh, and one who was unchanging and eternal. In chapter 3, the son is greater than Moses. Moses, as the children of Israel looked at their past, would have said no doubt that Moses is the greatest prophet, but this one, the Lord Jesus, is greater because Moses was a servant in the house of God, but Jesus, of course, is a son over the house of God. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son over the house. And then there's a focus on the priesthood, and from chapters five through seven, if you're to read through Hebrews, you would see quite a bit about what a priest is supposed to be and what he is supposed to do. And in Hebrews, there's a, a raising of uh, an issue that we might not have seen in the Old Testament, but is a reality is that there, wa- there, were mo- there was more than one kind of priesthood. There was a priesthood established by law. And there's also a priesthood like Melchizedek, as you see Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis, who was a priest-king. He was actually priest and king of Salem, and so the same city where David was king, and of course Jesus is priest-king over Jerusalem, his city. There's a lot of similarities, so much so that if you read through chapter 7, there's sometimes where there's a, a difficulty discerning how are these two different, and some view Melchizedek as the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't believe that he is, but uh, that's a, a a study for chapter seven. But in chapter eight, the focus is on the high priesthood of Jesus and upon his ministry. So, in my Bible, I don't know what the heading is in your Bible. The heading in chapter 8 is a better ministry. Of course, he's had to establish by this point that Jesus was or is a high priest. He's already done that, as he's talked in previous chapters, that even though he didn't come from the tribe of Aaron, he was not after the order of Aaron, yet there was still a decree, in fact, an oath from God to Christ that he was a priest forever forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the kind of priesthood he had. And if you look back in chapter 7, we'll just look at verses 23 down through 28 to kind of pick up to where we are in chapter 8. It says in verse 23, chapter 7, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, verse 25, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting, verse 26, For us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And that phrase, once for all, is once for all time. There was no necessity of a second sacrifice or any other sacrifice. He did it once for all. When he offered up himself. Verse 28 For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And there it is again that word son that draws attention to the unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. He is the Son of God, and even as you read through the Old Testament, you see that term Son associated with the Messiah. It's associated in Psalm 2 with the Messiah, and the Messiah was a king, but in this case, the focus is on the priesthood of Christ. Now, if you were to, to stop and think about the Gospels for a second, did Jesus ever exercise priestly ministry in the
1: Gospels? Now, there's a really
0: obvious, if we read through the book of Hebrews, way in which he exercised his priestly ministry, and that is he offered up his sacrifice. And it was the sacrifice of himself. So that's, that's an obvious one. That's one point the writer of Hebrews makes. But where's the, what's the realm of the priest? What's the normal daily activities of the high priest? Well, he's, he's in the temple. He's offering sacrifices. In fact, some would say that's even the essence of what a priest is, is to offer sacrifices. That's what priests did. They were a, a mediator between uh, man and God and appointed so in the law for that reason.
1: So did Jesus ever show up in the temple? And you remember he did, and he actually
0: exercised authority in the temple by clearing out the temple on more than one occasion. And they questioned as to whether or not he had that authority. And before he would give them the answer to that question, he then posed a question to them. What, what do you think about the baptism of John? And, of course, they had a conundrum because they didn't accept John, but the people did. And so if they answered one way or another, they were going to be in trouble. If it was from God, if John's baptism was from God, he could ask them why they didn't submit to it. But they didn't answer that question, and so Jesus didn't give them an answer to their question. But Jesus was and is high priest. And beyond that, he's the Lord of the temple. So he did exercise authority in the temple, and he really is a high priest. If someone asked you, do you have a priest? You might say, well, I don't believe that, that we should have priests. You might be thinking of an earthly institution that has priests as their leaders. But I do have a high priest, and so do you if you know Jesus Christ. Not only is he Savior, not only is he Lord, but he is high priest. And we are to come to God through our high priest, that high priest who is our mediator. And so as you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is really focused in on that Old Testament institution of the priesthood in this section and how a priest ought to operate. And in verses one through six of this chapter, it's talking about the ministry of the high priest. So let's read verses 1 through 6. He's kind of summarizing and looking back and moving forward in his arguments about the superiority of Christ. Verse 1, he says, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have, present reality, such a high priest. When it says such, what kind of high priest? Well, it's a high priest who was Verse 28, based upon the word of an oath, God declared him to be the high priest and forever, and he was also, if you look back at verse 26, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's, that's an explanation of no earthly high priest. No earthly high priest could, even if they were a good high priest, and there were some, They could not bear that kind of a description as Jesus could. So back to verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So not only does he have a present ministry as priest, but his priesthood is heavenly, and exalted to the very throne of God. When it says that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, the word majesty refers, I believe, to God himself. And so as we understand the Trinity, this is God the Father and Christ taking his rightful seat upon the throne as well at the right hand of the Father. And then the writer says, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And we know that man pitched a tabernacle,
1: or he set up the tabernacle.
0: We know that he was commanded to do so. Uh, We understand even from this passage that the Lord gave direction as to what to do, but This passage says that our high priest is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Now, does that make the other one false? I don't think he would say it's false, but he's going to say some things later on and has said some things before to help us understand what that tabernacle was all about. Look at verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. And here's a key, key verse here who serve, that is, the priests on earth, serve as a copy or serve rather a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, foresee, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And I think verse six kind of puts us into the deep end there's a lot to think about there. But very basically, with the first verses here, we've been taught that we have a high priest. We have such a high priest, described as the writer of Hebrews does, sinless, holy, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. His priesthood is in a heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle and we find out a little bit later in the in the, the passage about what earthly things are to be in connection with those heavenly realities. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 4, this priest that we have who ministers in the true sanctuary, if he was on earth, he he would not be a priest at all because there are priests who are offering gifts according to the law. So there are There are earthly realities that he does not share. He did not offer sacrifices as they did at the tabernacle or the temple, but he still offered a sacrifice and he's gonna come to that as he continues through Hebrews. But then he explains that earthly ministry, that earthly ministry of the priesthood, because in verse five, sometimes we think of the shadow of the tabernacle as referencing heaven, but he's actually talking about priests, verse five, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, okay, so you've got Christ who's ministering in the true tabernacle and and that is casting a shadow upon the earth. There's a shadow of that with earthly priests, earthly sacrifices, and you could say based upon what he teaches later. The tabernacle itself. That earthly worship and that earthly system is a shadow and a copy of a heavenly reality. And so there's a shadow being cast. And so as they offered a sacrifice, for instance, as it says in verse 3, their offering sacrifices was a shadow of someone who would offer a true sacrifice. Okay, if 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 we could think of it this way, it's like this living and moving picture on earth of something that Christ himself would do and indeed did in the true sanctuary and tabernacle in heaven. So those high priests as sinful as some of them were, There was a picture, just in what they did every year on the Day of Atonement, there was a picture of what Christ would eventually do. As they would, on the Day of Atonement, offer a sacrifice. Those high priests would first offer a bowl for a sin offering for uh, himself and his family. Then he would take two goats. He would cast lots, and he would offer one. And he would take the blood and he would put it in a basin. And you remember what he would do? He would go into the holiest place and sprinkle the blood upon the altar. That was the offering of a sacrifice and especially the applying of the blood. And then they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to make the point that... Jesus did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He was not like those earthly priests who offered a bull for his sin offering because he never committed any sins. There was just one sacrifice, and that sacrifice was for sinners and for their sins. And that sacrifice was not a bull or a goat, we know, and he says the bulls and goats could never take away sins. It was himself. It was the body that God had given him that he offered for himself, uh, himself to God. And so, verse three, or excuse me, verse four if you were a priest on earth, you would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then we have this critical instruction that's given. By God to Moses, that really helps us to see that the gospel to a certain extent was being preached through the tabernacle long before Jesus ever came. Why do I say that? Because in verse five it says, Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. What's going on? Well, the Lord, in giving the instructions to Moses for whether it's the priesthood or the tabernacle or any of the details, God had intended to convey truth through that living picture. And Moses was not to deviate. He was not to use his imagination. He was not to come up with some idea that maybe we could do some something in the tabernacle here and make this more ornate or change the location of something because God was intending through the tabernacle to communicate truth. That's why he said to Moses, see, again, end of verse 5, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. You can't be innovative when it comes to the worship of God. You can't be innovative when it comes to this picture of what Christ is going to come to do. And if you've ever gone through a study, careful study, of what the tabernacle was like and what the priest did, there are lots of pictures of the work of Christ. And one of those pictures is the offering of sacrifice. Every high priest offers a sacrifice. So Christ, too, as a high priest, is going to offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was for the sins of the people. And as he offered sacrifice for the sins of the people, Jesus only had to do it once. But what did the high priests have to do? They had to offer sacrifice year after year after year after year after year because there was no sacrifice that was effective, truly effective. And I remember hearing someone preach on that very theme. And we're going to get into the sacrifice later on in these chapters, but I remember someone talking about those sacrifices and how the high priest, if he was a believing high priest, he would he would prepare all the sacrifice, he would offer the bull for himself and his family, and then he would take the scapegoat and the other goat, and he would prepare that sacrifice, kill the one goat, take the blood. And while the altar of incense was smoking and sending that aroma into the holiest of holies, he would enter with that basin and the hyssop, and he would walk in, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And if it was a high priest who had served various years consecutively, he would have been there the last year. and There would have been dried blood from the previous sacrifices, unless for some reason they cleaned it off. But if, if he had been in there the year before and he came in there again and he did that every year of his ministry until the very end of the time that he could, remember this person saying, if they were thinking and anticipating, they would, they would have to say, there has to be something more. There has to be something more than this.
1: And indeed, there is. That was a shadow.
0: But the sacrifice of Christ was the reality. And that's what he's going to go on to argue here as he continues through Hebrews uh, 8 through 10. But look look at verse 5. Again, the end of the verse. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you. Or shown you on the mountain. Not only did Moses have to follow instructions regarding the pattern of the tabernacle, but even the practice of worship, they could not innovate. They could not come up with a new idea. In fact, very early on in Israel's history, when someone did come up with a new idea and decided to try to offer worship in a way that God had not commanded, what do you see happening? Nadab and Abihu were struck dead immediately. Fire came out, and he executed them for their failure to obey God's word. So God is very serious about the worship that is offered to him. And I would say, certainly in the Old Testament as well as the New, we can't innovate. We have to follow God's word. It's not up to us to just get good ideas so that we can gather people and sort of promote things that people will like so that we can fill this room and build the bigger buildings and bigger and better all the time. No, we have to obey the Lord. And part of that is what we're doing right now as we spend time in his word. Part of what we're doing today as we observe the Lord's table is just following the instruction he's given us.
1: So we can't innovate. And whether it's
0: music or worship, anything that we do, we want to be sure that Scripture is itself directing us. And really, uh, by the Word of God, we are authorized to do what we do. We don't want to displease the Lord. We don't want to offer worship to the Lord that is displeasing to Him. So that statement see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain was very directive to Moses regarding that system of worship. You know that the tabernacle didn't continue on. The Ark of the Covenant and the vessels and things that were used for worship continued on until the day that that Solomon, remember, built the temple. And there were features to that temple that were new. But even that, I think if you explore David's own life, and when that temple was built, that God actually gave David the instructions for that house and directions for that house. So there isn't to be innovation. God gives revelation, and through his revelation, he gives instruction to his people. It's on the basis of revelation that we do what we do, that we ought to do what we do. Look at verse six. Speaking of our high priest, who is presently a high priest who is ministering in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, verse two, he has a gift to offer. It is actually his ministry that these earthly priests are a copy and a shadow of. They give testimony to the reality of his priesthood. Verse six, it says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. I said we're kind of being thrown into the deep end here, but he's talking about the kind of ministry that he has as a high priest and the kind of ministry that the high priest of the Old Testament had. The high priest of the Old Testament had a ministry based upon law, instruction from God, and it's not that Jesus doesn't have one instructed by the Word of God, but his, his ministry is better because there's a better covenant that he administers. And what is that covenant? Now, we might have to talk about covenants, but it's mentioned here in this chapter. And when I say covenants, I'm talking about the biblical covenants. In fact, if we read our Bible before we even open Genesis, we look at the heading over that part of the Bible. It is the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And then we look at the book of Matthew and the page right before. That's the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so we're, we're talking about something that certainly is related to the very structure of the Bible, related certainly to what we're uh, talking about here, but even related to the Lord's table, because as we think about the Lord's table, as Jesus gave instruction with regard to uh, the Lord's table, he talked about the covenant. I'm going to read to you from verse 25 of first corinthians 11 it says in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood jesus is the minister or mediator of a better covenant it is the new covenant and the new covenant has better promises And the new covenant is made reference to in this chapter. In fact, the next heading in my Bible, I don't know about your Bible, but the next heading in my Bible, starting in verse 7, is a new covenant. And just so we know what the other covenant is, he gives some explanation as to what that is. So starting in verse 7, notice what he says. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, so it's a new covenant with at the time that he's speaking, two nations that were originally one. It was Israel, but they had been divided into two. But notice in verse 9, he talks about the other covenant. Verse 9, he says not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So, what covenant are we talking about? We're talking about the covenant that we associate with the 10 commandments, the covenant that's sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, That's the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the covenant that had laws connected with it, laws given by God for the people to obey. And this really is part of understanding our Bible because we're talking about, when we say Old and New Testament, the Greek Christians in the early church, when they looked at the revelation that God had given, that's how they characterized the different portions of the Bible. That's an interpretation. This is the new covenant, Matthew through Revelation. And Genesis through Malachi is the old covenant. If you want to turn back with me for a moment to Exodus chapter 19, turn if you would back to Exodus chapter 19. There's a proposal that God makes for that covenant.
2: Exodus 19. We'll
0: start in verse 1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that very day, they came to the into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So what is God doing here? He's proposing a covenant. Now it has a link back to the covenant he made with Abraham. But it is a covenant with this group of people who he led out of the land of Egypt. He's just proposed it to them. He tells Moses to go and tell them. And so Moses does, verse seven. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And verse eight, notice, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Uh,
1: you, You could put it in wedding terms. Will you make a covenant with me? Yes, I will. Right, But this is
0: God and his people. This is what he proposed. He had shown grace to them. And they said, in light of his grace and who he was and what he was promising, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the proposal is accepted, and then they learn how great God is, not only through the plagues, but God actually comes down on that mountain, and he gives requirements, laws, commandments. If they're going to be in covenant with him, he wants their undivided total loyalty as a people. You shall have no other gods before me. And as he proceeds through the Ten Commandments, he's calling for their total loyalty. And as you continue on, you can see that the children of Israel, as they heard those words from the Lord from the top of the mountain, turn over to chapter 24,
1: after all those words had been delivered, Verse three of chapter
0: 24, it says, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. He proposed it. He set down the qualifications, the commandments, and they said, everything the Lord has spoken, we'll do. They agreed.
1: They they put the ring on the finger and
0: and they said, Yes, we will do this. God had committed to them, He'd shown grace to them. Now they're committing to God, and now you have a covenant. And as time progresses, very shortly after these moments, what happens? And what happens repeatedly through their
1: history? They broke the covenant. They actually worshipped an idol at the very place where they made the covenant. They broke it.
0: And really the study of Israel through the Old Testament is a study of covenant unfaithfulness, Covenant faithfulness for a time, but then covenant unfaithfulness, and then faithfulness for a time. And you can see, even based on Hebrews and even the teaching in the Old Testament, that there was a problem with that covenant. What was the problem? Well, the Lord in Hebrews chapter 8 says there was fault with that covenant, but the fault didn't lie with God or the qualifications, the fault was with the people and their hearts, and their sin.
1: Turn, if you would, back to Hebrews chapter 8. He charges
0: them, verse 9, with not continuing in my covenant. They were not faithful to the covenant.
1: And he said, I did not care for them.
0: Now you can examine the Old Testament and see ways in which God judged their unfaithfulness to the covenant. He even sometimes gave them pictures of what he was like and what they were like. So when Hosea marries a woman and she becomes unfaithful to him, Hosea goes and takes her back. And she was unfaithful even to the point of prostitution. He took her back and he kept her as his wife, to show the kind of loving faithfulness the Lord has to a a people that's really
1: completely unfaithful.
0: So what kind of covenant is he going to make that's going to overcome this issue? Look at verse 10, Hebrews chapter 8. Here's the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll just point something out here. He had said in verse 8, the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The assumption in verse 10 is that no longer are they two. They're now one back under that original name. No longer Judah and Israel, now Israel only. He's not making a covenant just with Israel, but with both of those nations now joined and subsumed under that name. And he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, notice this, end of verse 11. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And here we have a beautiful description of God's grace to this nation, which, yes, over time had been unfaithful, but he was going to be gracious to them in such a way that he was going to write his law into their minds and hearts in a way that they would obey him that it would be their desire to obey him and that they would obey him and that there would be, as someone called it, a consummation of this relationship that he intended for centuries and centuries, that he would be their God and that they would be his people, that there would be a a uniting between the people and God. Their heart would be to do what he said, and they would have the power to do that.
1: and look at verse
0: 11, this relationship with God, this work in their hearts was going to be not selective, and individual or small groups or just a portion of the nation, but it was going to be extensive through the whole nation. Notice what it says, verse 11 they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. That's like evangelism. That's that's basically saying, here's who the Lord is. But they're not going to have to say that to each other because everybody's going to know him. Everybody's going to be believing on him. The kind of covenant that God has planned for his people, the house of Israel, is a kind of covenant where he works in their hearts, he writes the law in their hearts, their minds, so that they want to obey. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. There will be a covenant relationship, truly. They're all going to know him. There
1: won't be somebody who doesn't know him. And
0: then notice verse 12, what's the basis of all that? He says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more.
1: And if you read through Old Testament history and read that
0: statement, that's quite a statement. That God would be merciful to this nation that repeatedly rejected
1: his messengers put some of them in prison, mocked them, killed some of them,
0: threw Jeremiah in a muddy cistern when he was trying to tell them the word of God. And in place of worshiping him, they invented gods for themselves and they worshiped all sorts of other gods. And yet he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to do all these things, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's coming a point at which he's going to deal with them in such a way where they're actually going to, he's going to be so good to them that they're going to be sorrowful and shut their mouths for the shame that they have, for their rebellion through the generations and generations and generations. Read to the Old Testament, I think you'll see that God has a plan, yes, for the house of Israel, where he will show them his mercy through the new covenant. Now, you might be a Gentile here today.
1: Any Gentiles, non-Jews? Right?
0: That's not me. But the blessing that we learn from the New Testament is that we actually get to participate In the blessings of the new covenant, God never intended only to bless the nation of Israel. He even said through Abraham that he was going to bless all the nations of the earth. And we could explore the Old Testament and his grace to Gentiles in the Old Testament, but we understand that God has an interest in all of the peoples praising him, all of the peoples worshiping him. And when it comes to the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins and what is not right here in this passage, but as a part of the New Covenant, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart. Those blessings of the New Covenant, someone would call them trickle-down blessings, they come to the Gentiles too. And we get to participate in those blessings. In fact, in in an interesting way, when we observe the Lord's table, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, there's a sense in which we're giving testimony to this covenant that he's made with his people, that he is going to do what he said he would do with the nation of Israel. That as the church meets together and observes the Lord's table, we of course, remember the sacrifice of Christ, his blood shed for us, his body given for us, but we're also giving testimony to this covenant that he's made with his people. We benefit from it, but one day He will show his mercy. He will grant his forgiveness. He will give them a heart to know him. He will put his law in their hearts, their minds. He will place his spirit upon them and they will turn to him. The nation will turn to him. This is a part of, as we think about eschatology, we think about the nation of Israel. We do believe that the nation of Israel one day will turn to him. And what are they going to say? Well, they're going to say things
1: like Isaiah 53. That they did not
0: understand who Jesus was. We esteemed him not, they will say. But they will also say that he was bruised for our iniquities. That the chastisement for our well-being was upon him. They will come to the place where they recognize The Messiah. If you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12,
1: and we'll conclude here about Zechariah Malachi just before the end of the Old Testament. Notice verse
0: 10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn and in that day there will be a great mourning in jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the in the plain of megiddo i believe that was josiah when josiah died the, Land verse 12 will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Why such an emphasis on the sorrow and and what is that last part talking about have you ever been in a place where you just you just couldn't talk to someone else and you just didn't want to be around someone else not because you didn't love them or but because you were so sorrowful for something that you just had to be alone you just couldn't be with other people because of the sorrow that you're experiencing you didn't want someone else seeing you sobbing uncontrollably uncontrollably I believe what he's talking about here is really the sorrow that they have for their rejection of the one whom they pierced. God is going to bring them to that place. And as we observe the Lord's table, we remember what Christ did for us and we praise him for the blood that's shed for our sins and the body that's given as a sacrifice for us. But if you've ever noticed in 1 Corinthians 11, We're also doing something when we observe the Lord's table. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Paul said in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That death that was the inauguration of the new covenant, which will have its fulfillment when his people turn to him. We anticipate that by grace. We proclaim it as we observe the Lord's table. So, as the Lord makes application of the truths that we've heard, I hope you see the significance a little bit more of what we're doing, even as we come, and certainly the significance of what God is doing and what He did through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer.
1: Our Father in heaven, as we
0: bow in your presence, we are thankful for your plan and your purpose. We are thankful that we have a great high priest who has interposed for us. He has interposed his blood, his sacrifice, so that we might not have to
1: suffer. But he suffered in our place.
0: And we have the forgiveness of sins through what he has done. We thank you, Lord, for the magnitude of your mercy, which we learn about as we think about your mercy towards your people, Israel. But we know that we, too, are sinful and wicked and have been the recipients of your great mercy if we believed in Christ. And we pray that even now, as we observe the Lord's table, that you would be honored, that we would be
1: grateful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I like to ask our deacons if you'd come, mango if you'd come,
2: we prepare for the Lord's table
0: As Paul gave instruction, referred to 1 Corinthians 11 a couple of times, and the significance of what we're doing as we remember our Lord his body, his blood, his sacrifice for us. Paul warns the Corinthians, he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So you can actually sin in following this ordinance without considering yourself, without... Examining yourself. And so he says in verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so we certainly want to take some time before we observe this ordinance of the Lord to examine ourselves before him, to make sure that we're in right relationship with him. First of all, that we know him, that you know him as your Lord and Savior. That you turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in him alone. And then that you're walking in obedience. And really the first step of obedience for the Christian uh, as they've come to know the Lord is to be baptized. And so there's instruction in God's word that when a person professes Christ, comes to know the Lord, that that's the next step. And so you may be, and I know a a number have even expressed to me uh, recently that they'd like to be baptized, and that's the right thing to do first. If you've done that, and you're in right relationship to the Lord, and you're in right relationship to uh, one another, this is a communion. So as we gather together as a church, we want to make sure that we're right, first of all, with the Lord, but also with one another. And um, there are times, of course, that we may need to deal with things in relationships with one another, where there's been some Rupture in our relationship. We need to make sure that we make things right, confess our sin, ask for forgiveness, make sure there's nothing between me and my fellow uh, believer. But if we're right with the Lord, right with one another, uh, this time for examination is really just to consider our life before the Lord and ask the Lord, Search me. Oh Lord, no my heart try me know my thoughts see if there's any wicked way in me if there's anything that I'm doing lord that I need to deal with help me to see it and i would just encourage you to pray that but also trust that as he works in your conscience through the word of god that if he brings anything to mind you know of anything I encourage you to deal with that and then as you deal with that and as you partake today remember that The Lord gave his body as a sacrifice for your sins, and he shed his blood so that you could be forgiven and rejoice in what he's done because he has made a way for you and me to be forgiven. And so communion may be a somber thing because we're examining ourselves, but it should be a joyful thing in that we know that if we do confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And it's because of the sacrifice that he made, the blood that he shed. Without the remission, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But with the shedding of blood, there is remission. And so his blood covers. And he doesn't remember our sins anymore. He's not going to visit our sins with any kind of punishment because Jesus has taken that punishment for us. That's what we sang about today in that hymn of the month, and I hope that that will be an encouragement for us to meditate on as well. So let's take some moments and meditate on the Lord and examine ourselves before the Lord, make sure that we're right with him, and then we'll give thanks
2: and distribute and then partake together. Father, we thank you for the grace
1: that you have shown to us, giving us the knowledge of your Son,
0: giving us a knowledge of the good news of the gospel, giving us a knowledge of forgiveness of sins. And we thank you today as well, because we know that you have said in your word that you will have mercy on whom you'll have mercy, and you harden whom you will.
1: We've been recipients of your mercy today. It's based upon your choice, your kindness to us, which we did not, do not merit. And we thank you, Lord, that that was before the foundation of the world. And if we've received your mercy, we know it has implications for eternity to come, the ages to come. So we thank you for the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from our sins, for his body given for us.
0: Thank you, Lord, for your work by your spirit in our hearts to alert us to things that are in our lives that are displeasing to you. And as we have confessed and forsaken, Lord, we pray that you'd help us never to return to those sins. and Purpose anew to walk
1: in the newness of life. Lord, if someone's bent and direction
0: is, as one of your children, is set upon evil and persistence in disobedience to you,
1: We thank you, Lord, that you're a good father, and we would just ask, Lord, that you would deal as a good father
0: to bring that child of yours into right relationship with yourself. We would certainly wish no one
1: harm, but I think we all would say that when trials come and they turn us to you, that it's a good thing. We just pray that you do your work.
0: And Lord, we know that you set your face against those who do evil and persist in that. And so we do pray that you would just govern your church. As you're the head of the church, you see everything in the church. You see every person, every heart's desire. We pray that you would, as you saw the churches of Revelation, you see us. We pray that you would deal with us so that we might be pure
2: and holy as a church, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ask Brother Chad if you lead us in a prayer
1: of thanksgiving for our Lord's body given for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for this time that we can reflect and remember what your Son did on the cross for us so many years
2: ago. Body was bruised, broken, and beaten for us, it spat upon,
1: bloody. Lord, we do humbly come before you and thank you and thank you for your grace your mercy thank you for the body that was
2: all that was done
1: on his and he willingly gave that up for us Lord Jesus and
2: we ask amen I'm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The first to.
1: Father Tim Crick, would you lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for our Lord shed blood? Our Father, we are thankful that you sent the Son. Lord, we're thankful that Christ did shed his blood on the cross. We know from your word that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. Lord, we have sinned the plenty. We do want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for Christ's shed blood on our, applied to our account that we might be cleansed, brought into the fold. We may someday join you in heaven. Encourage us, Lord, strengthen us. Give us a heart of joy because of all that you've done for us. In Jesus'
2: name, amen. amen. mm <laughs> mm i <laughs> The <tries> 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 Would you take your hymnal and turn to 128?
0: Stand together with me and sing praise to our Lord and Savior. 128, hallelujah. What a Savior.